Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have a very special episode for you guys today. Once again, make sure you go to AmericanMoment.org, find all of the cool, wonderful things we have cooking there. Make sure that you're rating and reviewing the podcast five stars. There's like double of you listening to this than there was like two months ago. So uh, there's a lot of new reviews that need to be written. And so measure up. Uh, We are well past 100, but I want to see 200. So let's make that happen. This episode today is a little bit special, a little bit different. Uh, For those of you who aren't aware, we are not just a disembodied podcast floating around the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, We are an organization that does a whole bunch of things, most of which is behind the scenes. But we started foraying into doing uh, in-person events in D.C. uh, that aren't just parties. And so we had a panel that we had uh, here at the Conservative Partnership Center a couple days ago that basically held up as a stellar episode of the podcast and so we thought we would release it to you guys it's called red states in defiance using law to fight federal lawlessness with a bunch of friends of ours including a past moment of truth guest uh andrew kloster was one of the panelists alongside two of the deputies for the texas attorney general's office um the first assistant uh, brent webster and the deputy uh, attorney general for policy aaron Wrights, who is an old old friend of mine um they're awesome. Uh, the The Texas Attorney General's office is one of the offices doing the most entrepreneurial and interesting work on the right across the country. And so we talked about some of the cases that they have going, uh, what Andrew Kloster makes of the strategy they've taken when it comes to to being a little bit more deft, a little bit ecumenical, a little bit more willing to fight vis-a-vis how the conservative legal establishment tends to think about these things. Uh, And in general, it was a really informative and fun episode of the podcast. And so we really hope you'll enjoy it. And uh, for those of you who came and saw it in person, thank you. I mean, we had standing room only. It was completely packed. And um, I've had the misfortune of being at some panels in the District of Columbia over the last few months. And I'll tell you, a packed room for a panel is pretty rare. So it's a testament, I think, to both uh, how loyal uh, American Moments group are and uh, how good we are at throwing events. So, I, yeah, I'm sure the fact that we provided free Chipotle was also a, uh, a a factor here. And that to say, you know, if you do get invited to one of these panels that we host, make sure you come because I always bring a banging lunch. Yeah, it's always go. good. Um, if you are interested in coming to these sorts of things in the future, if you go to AmericanMoment.org slash events and click on any of the events that are on that page, all of them are, of course, ended at this point. Um, there's a little interest form at the bottom of them where you can fill it out and you'll be on our list um, to come to future ones. And so uh, it was a great time. And uh, I say there are formal bios in in the actual panel itself. So I'm going to hold on doing that right now. But again, it's it's Andrew Kloster, Aaron Wrights, Brent Webster and myself. And uh, it was very high energy, high octane. We had a fantastic time. So we'll go now uh, to Red States in Defiance. Uh, Howdy, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started here. uh, If you guys wouldn't mind uh, quieting down a little bit. Um, uh, if people need to trickle in towards the front, that's all right. Uh, just, you know, be a little bit quiet while doing so. Um, thank you guys for coming. Uh, this is the first sort of event like this that we've decided to do. Hopefully, uh, we'll continue to do it. I mean, the room's packed, which is not something you can say of most DC panels. So thank you for giving your lunch hour to us. Uh, and please feel free to go, uh, get refills on food, um, over the course of the panel. Um, For those of you who don't know, my name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, the organization that put on this event. We have a a what and a why. Uh, The what is that we identify, educate, and credential young personnel in Washington, D.C., the people who will go on to staff the Hill, presidential administrations, public policy organizations, and so on. And the why is that we're motivated by a very particular vision of what the future of the right and conservatism should look like, uh, one that I think has uh, many adherents in this room uh, and many adherents on this panel, one that uh, seeks uh, to take seriously the challenges facing strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all in the 21st century. 
Um, this event uh, could not have happened without the help of uh, the DC uh, uh, branch of the Claremont Institute, their Center for the American Way of Life. Arthur Millick, their executive director, should be here. He's running a few minutes behind. He had some meetings on the Hill. So if you see a, a vaguely Eastern European-looking, right-wing-looking uh, person walk in towards the back, that's him. Uh, I highly recommend you guys check out everything that the Claremont Institute uh, does, specifically their DC branch, and you can learn more about them at dc.claremont.org. Uh, the ideas that are discussed in the pages of the American Mind and the Claremont Review of Books um, have been hugely influential on American Moment, and, and I believe many of you, to the point where this organization would not exist were it not for a piece that was written in the American Mind by one of our board members, J.D. Vance. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our panelists today. We're very lucky to have some out-of-towners um, uh, who are here uh, for the Federalist Society Convention and agreed to, to take some time out of their busy day to, uh, to speak to the panel today, um, starting with uh, Brent Webster, uh, who's the first Assistant Attorney General for the state of Texas. Uh, uh, Brent currently serves as the first Assistant Attorney General for the Office of the Texas Attorney General. Prior to this role, he served as a criminal prosecutor in Texas for 10 years, also serving as the first Assistant District Attorney in Williamson County. As a Williamson County Assistant District Attorney, he was awarded the Crime Victim Advocate Hall of Fame Award for outstanding service to crime victims. Since leaving the Williamson County District Attorney's Office, he's served as a civil litigator and as a criminal defense attorney in private practice. He also recently served as a Chief Operations Officer and General Counsel at a startup in Austin, rapidly scaling that business. He received his undergraduate education at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, graduating in 2003, and received his legal education at the University of Houston Law Center in 2005. He's licensed to practice law by the state of Texas and is admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal district courts in the Western Southern and Northern Districts of Texas. Uh, Aaron Wrights is the Texas Deputy Attorney General for Legal Strategy. After graduating from Texas A&M University, where he was a regimental commander in the Corps of Cadets, Mr. Wrights commissioned as an officer in the United States Marine Corps and married his high school sweetheart, Meredith. He spent nearly five years on active duty and deployed to the Northern Helmand Province of Afghanistan, where he was embedded with the Afghan National Army. He remains a major with the Houston-based Lone Star Battalion in the Marine Corps Reserve. After active duty, Mr. Wrights attended the University of Texas School of Law, where he served as the president of the Texas Federalist Society and the editor-in-chief of the Texas Review of Law and Politics. He began his career at Bracewell LLP in Houston and then clerked for Justice Jimmy Blacklock on the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, meanwhile, he completed fellowships with the John Jay Institute, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Claremont Institute, and the James Wilson Institute. Before joining the Office of the Attorney General, he litigated commercial dis uh, disputes in private practice. Uh, him and his wife have three young children, William, Caroline, and Cecilia, uh, and I believe a fourth on the way, if that's public. Um, and uh, he serves as a Cub Scouts Cub Master at the Regent School of Austin, and he and his family are members of St. Mary Catholic Church in Austin. Um, and uh, he's very good Catholic because he's the reason I'm becoming Catholic. Anyway, uh, Andrew Kloster uh, is an attorney in Washington, D.C. He previously served in various capacities in the Trump administration and in a January 2021 was appointed to a three-year term as a council member on the Administrative Conference of the United States. He served concurrently as the associate director in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel and as the deputy general counsel at the United States Office of Personnel Management. There, he was responsible for all aspects of executive branch personnel management, including rulemaking relating to civil service, the vetting and selection of Senate-confirmed and other officials, and Appointments Clause and Vacancies Reform Act issues. Prior to that, he also served at the uh, United States Environmental Protection Agency and the United States Department of Transportation. He also has a long tenure in the conservative legal movement at the Scalia Law School, the Heritage Foundation, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, and elsewhere. Mr. Kloster has published opinion pieces and law review articles in a wide variety of outlets and has appeared in various media. He's a graduate of the New York University School of Law and the University of Miami and clerked on the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. He resides in Maryland with his wife, several sons, and his bees. Uh, now, those were very long bios, but I will say personally, uh, these three gentlemen do more than almost any other that I can think about to really use their law degrees, which I rarely encourage people to get, to actually serve the common good in this country. Um, they are aggressive. Um, they are extremely intelligent. And we're very honored to get a chance to talk to them about um, a variety of the issues that they're working on here today. So please give them a round of applause. 
Um, so I wanted to start with, with Brent and Aaron um, talking about the work that uh, Attorney General Paxton of Texas is doing on a variety of the issues we tend to care about here at American Moment, whether it's immigration, big tech, abortion, the opioid crisis, and more. Um, really want to uh, zoom out and get a, a theory of the case because Attorney General Paxton has really been more entrepreneurial and, and more of a leader than most um, in really using his office uh, to do great and good things, even during uh, a Republican presidential administration when many AGs tend to be quite sleepy and lethargic. Um, Brent, why don't, why don't you walk us through sort of how Attorney General Paxton thinks about these issues and, and what your office does? Absolutely. Um, well, Attorney General Paxton, he very much philosophically believes in the cases he brings. So he's not someone who's just trying to score political points. He ran for office on principle during the Obama years. Uh, he saw where this nation was heading and his mission is very much philosophical uh, driven to save America, to save Texas, um, and to preserve these conservative values that we believe in. Um, what's transpired, he, most of his term time in office, he has been under the Trump presidency. And so as a AG under the Trump presidency, you were very much uh, in a defense mind. You know, you're defending its lawsuits being filed against Texas. Uh, but we came. We had a shift happen, of course, as y'all know, with with the new administration coming in. That was timed pretty well with my joining the office and Aaron's joining the office as well. I, I had no prior experience with an AG's office. I didn't have prior biases. Um, I didn't have a mindset that had been entrenched. I did not come up through those ranks. I came up as a prosecutor, pretty aggressive prosecutor in a pro law enforcement uh, DA's office. And then I have a very, very much a big entrepreneurial mind. I've been, I gravitate towards the startup world. Um, my, my extended family owns a big, a big corporation in Texas that started as a small, nimble startup. And so I very much came into the job uh, expecting to go on the offensive. And you'll find that a lot of AG's offices um, in the past have relied on this multi-state model where you come in and you all get together and you share your resources and then you file one like really good case and you take your time to make that case. And then once it's ready, you file it and you just shoot your bullet in one circuit and hope for the best. And what we learned through the Trump era was that's not the best model. The Democrats did this really well. They came in and they filed on every jurisdiction, same or similar cases to try and get that one TRO they needed, that one PI. And they were wildly successful, objectively wildly successful at that. So we came in, and Aaron was a part of this, and we came in to push the AGs around the nation, and our boss was on board 100% in filing that strategy and pursuing that strategy. So we always want to bring a case in the Fifth Circuit. We always want to bring a case in specific circuits that we think are going to rule our way, sometimes even the Ninth Circuit, because right, an adverse ruling in the Ninth Circuit that's crazy is actually beneficial to us before the Supreme Court. Um, so we have very much uh, pushed the limits of our office to always file a case, always uh, – poke this administration and file good cases nonetheless. Um, so we, we've, we were meeting with, in fact, other AGs today to talk about this strategy here in D.C. Um, but it's, it's been a process for us. Uh, we, we have a great team, and I'm going to let Aaron talk about that as well. But we, we're, our aggressiveness is definitely our hallmark, and we'll continue to do that. So I remember uh, one of our mutual friends, both my friend and I know a friend of American Moment and the Claremont Institute is Cleta Mitchell. And I remember speaking with her at one point, and, and she said that the motto for Republican attorneys general needs to be uh, WWDD. And it stands for what would Democrats do? Okay. And what that means in this particular context is exactly what Brent was talking about, which is just blitzing front and every front where you can. You don't want to file bad lawsuits, right? But the sort of... Uh, hyper-caution that I think uh, too often Republicans demonstrate, not just in the legal space, but political and elsewhere, right, is the, the, the time for that is, is over. We need to understand what time it is and sort of fight our, our war accordingly. So philosophically, I want to touch on something, something that animates, I know, uh, me and Brent and Attorney General Paxson. It is an abiding belief that we, as a movement, are at war with the forces that want to destroy the American order, root and branch. They hate the entire project, okay? Now, we're at war. If you don't believe that we're at war, then I think you, you, know, you need to wake up to that reality. 
But here at the Texas Attorney General's office, the way that we fight that war is our soldiers are lawyers and our weapons are lawsuits and our tactics is lawfare. Okay. And so this is the project that we're engaged in. Attorney General Paxson has certain constitutional powers. He's got nearly 700 lawyers and a few thousand support staff. And what our responsibility is doing with sort of Brent as our head coach and me as the offensive coordinator is we mobilize all those resources in the furtherance of that lawfare to stop what we believe to be an enemy of the American order. And that, that colors everything we do. It colors what cases we try to go after. It colors how we think about uh, what we want to do next uh, and so forth. So that's our animating philosophy. I think it's consistent with, uh, with where the Republicans need, need to move. I will tell you this, is, this will be the last thing I say about uh, this, this opening question. Um, Brent touched on this. Right now, state Republican leadership, whether in governor's mansions or attorney, attorneys general's offices and so forth, are going through right now, we're living this, sort of the growing pains of coming to understand and believe this. And we work a lot with our friends around the country. Some Republicans get it, and others just don't. But the ones that don't, we're dragging them along kicking and screaming, because at the end of the day, Attorney General Paxson keeps winning and winning and winning and winning, right? I mean, we, we have been on the, Texas has been on the plaintiff's side of the V against the United States since Inauguration Day 16 times. I mean, no, nobody has replicated that, nowhere. Not in the Obama administration, no state, anywhere at any time have you seen that sort of pace. Uh, but I take some hope in these meetings with these Republican AGs. They're, they're coming along. They're, they're starting to see that it's a real winner to be aggressive and to go after the enemy that hates this country. Andrew, you were inside the administration, and, and you experienced that sustained assault that uh, the Democrats and the left were able to wage against the Trump administration, stopping everything from day one. Uh, what, what do you make of the strategy that, that Aaron and Brent are talking about that the AG's office in Texas is using? Yeah. So just to step back a moment for folks that are staffers, I mean, this is extremely helpful. It's, it's great to see the pivot. Uh, so one of the things that we knew, I'll start with, let me start back up. The best defense is a good offense, Right. Uh, and why is that? Well, because uh, as we just heard, as Aaron just mentioned, you know, uh, this is a war and there are teams. So uh, you can win one of two ways. You can be you can uh, do as much good in your state as possible positively or you can help uh, block the resources of the other side. And one of the things that the Democrats did very effectively, you'll hear this careers and agencies at the federal level talk about this, too. Everybody knows, you know, if you've got a unified government and then all of a sudden, and you, you have the presidency, and then the midterms come around, and you lose the Congress like we did. It's like, holy crap, guess what, guys? Oversight's going to happen. You can't do anything now, because all of your staff hours are going to be spent responding to oversight. Um, and it's the job of the opposition oversight staff, maybe you're in this room, to throw as much stuff at them. So they're wasting their time responding to your letters. They're wasting time preparing for testimony and testifying, et cetera. Same thing happens on the legal front. Uh, the two things that Texas can do to protect its citizens are, one, focus internally and build as great of a state as they can. And I'm down there all the time. My wife's family's from Dallas. I'm in, I'll be there next week. We're there for Christmas. We love Texas. It's a great state. Uh, and you can be positive and build your state. But you also need to recognize that there are folks that are looking to target, to target your state, whether that's attacking your state's protection of the southern border to the extent that's a state responsibility whether it's your state's social policies, if it's abortion or whatever, um, they're looking to attack. So I think it's great to have all hands on deck and to decentralize as much as possible. Just to, to give a little bit of history here, um, it's often the case that you have RAGA or these other attorney generals associations or groups, maybe it's organized by the Chamber of Commerce or API, the American Petroleum Institute or whatever, and there's a general, you know, kind of coordinating and maybe it's a big law partner and he says, I've got this idea for how we're going to sue on X, Y, or Z, or maybe it's Obamacare. And he gets all the people in the room and they all kind of agree, oh, and then they workshop it to death and a thousand partners look at it and then who's going to do the primary drafting and then they file it, right? And, it, and a lot of it is funded by these outside lobbying groups. 
there's no knock on that. The left does it as well. It's, it's, that's just legal advice. And if it happens to make it into a filing, so what? I think what we're seeing is a lot of the malaise on the right, we don't have a vision, we don't have coordination, is advantageous because now we're decentralizing. The states are all doing their own thing. They're occupying the time of the federal government. DOJ staff, the Civil Rights Division at DOJ can be doing crazy stuff right now, suing to have you know no voter ID anywhere and you know mandatory absentee and a thousand hours and blah, blah. They can be doing those lawsuits or they can be responding to lawsuits um, when the state decides to pass new rules or, or file new lawsuits. So I think it's great there's decentralization. Not only is there that decentralization, but I was happy to see Texas's abortion law where it decentralizes even further and kind of lets individuals sort of bring action. So it's great that you know our base, our movement, we have the population. What we don't have is always the levers of authority or the coordination. So the more we can decentralize, I think the better it is for our side, typically. I totally agree. Um, one of the issues where I think that the divide between the previous administration and this one is most evident is immigration. Um, the status quo of immigration towards the tail end of the Trump administration was, I think, pretty good. Um, we, we largely had control of the southern border. Uh, and the Biden administration, both through rhetoric and policy, proceeded to make an utter hash of that. Uh, Brent, walk us through the fight uh, on the immigration issue. What are sort of the key areas of attack that you guys are looking at, um, the, 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 the soft spots that you're looking to target the, the Biden administration strategy on this? That's a great question. Um, the First of all, just to piggyback on what you just said, because it, it transitions to immigration really well. Um, what matters in these fights, and we've learned, is the speed with which we act. Um, if we allow any momentum to occur on these policies that are bad for states, that are bad for America, they will get traction and we will be on the losing end. And this is the hard part with a lot of attorneys. The ability for most attorneys to move fast, especially in a big law context. We have a lot of lawyers at the top of these agencies that are from big law. They don't move fast, right? You have to very much have a plaintiff's mentality, and that is a hard pivot. And so I take That's this from right? – so we, I did both. So I, I decided when I went to private practice I was going to try everything and see what I liked. Um, what I liked, though, was the startup mentality of – and I play this all the time in, in our office, and it annoys a lot of our appellate lawyers, but this concept of MVP, it's a minimally viable product. And that viable part is really important because we're not talking minimally cheap product or trashy product, minimally viable product of lawsuits because most lawyers want to vet the entire thing. And it's all about getting across the start line, getting that TRO. How fast can you do that? It's like a 24-hour to 40-hour turnaround. And so we did that with immigration very successfully. And I'm going to let Aaron, because Aaron has largely been the architect and, and driver of that project in immigration. But with immigration, we moved so fast that we had an injunction with how many days? Six days? I mean, out of the administration, out of the gate, they weren't ready for it. They were going to just be like, oh, we're just going to stop immigration enforcement in the United States, carte blanche. Well, we're not going to allow that. And so we had moved fast. But if we hadn't moved fast, that would have become the law of the land. We would have been behind the eight ball. The court would have been like, well, this is an emergency. You guys didn't show up at the doorstep. These courts are used to plaintiff's lawyers showing up within 48 hours, something happening, asking for that TRO. And when states delay, they, they lose credibility. And that's something that a lot of these AGs have to realize. But we did it on immigration very successfully on air to talk about immigration. Sure. And, and here's, here's one thing Brent always has our attorneys remember is – once you file a minimally viable product in court for the lawyers in the room, you know what you can do shortly after you file that thing? You can amend it and make it more perfect later. But you shouldn't let that person, you can't let the perf perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to the speed here. Okay. So I mentioned earlier, so let me take a step back. We, the state of Texas, is in 20 lawsuits with the Biden administration. 20. Of those, 16 are plaintiff side, three and four, excuse me, four, technically, I'm not going to go into the weeds, but four of them are defense. So 16 offense, four defense. Of the 16 offensive lawsuits against the Biden administration, seven of them are immigration related. And so I'm just going to touch on them on a very high level. And I don't know if we'll have time for Q&A, but I'm happy to go in, into the, There's just so much in them. I'm not going to go high into the weeds. But so our first lawsuit right out of the gate was the day after Inauguration Day, well, on Inauguration Day, January 20th, uh, President Biden issued an executive memorandum freezing all deportations for 100 days. It's manifestly illegal. 
and so we filed a complaint and a motion for TRO two days later. We got the TRO imposed a week later, and then we got a TI imposed, and the Biden administration never appealed it. Okay, so we sued on a deportation freeze. We've also sued on something called the public charge rule. So public charge rule at a high level, all right? For centuries in Western common law, there's this concept known as the public charge rule. And it's this idea that a country can exclude immigrants who are expected to be a drain on the public fisc. They're therefore deemed public a public charge, okay? Uh, President Trump tried to flesh out and expand what uh, we consider to be a public charge. That was being litigated through the courts. Biden was inaugurated and filed multiple motions to dismiss to cease its defense of the public charge rule. So what Texas did is it intervened to basically carry the water. Uh, and it's a very, very wonky procedural posture right now, but Texas right now is trying to defend in federal court uh, the Trump era public charge rule, okay? We've also sued on something called uh, MPP, the Remain in Mexico program, Migrant Protection Protocols, okay? This is the idea that uh, there's a body of laws that require uh, asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while their immigration claims are being adjudicated. Well, uh, the Biden administration tried to get rid of MPP. So we sued, uh, we won at the district court level. The district court judge said, no, the manner in which you tried to get rid of MPP uh, is illegal on various grounds, and so you have to faithfully, in good faith, implement MPP. The administration has tried to do all kinds of crazy things to avoid that judgment, but again, don't have time to go into that right now. We've also sued on uh, an ICE and DHS prioritization memo. So the idea here is that ICE and DHS attempted to give its law enforcement officers discretion over certain immigration uh, uh, detention and deportation decisions. But the problem is, is that the federal code, the U.S. code says that federal law enforcement shall do X, Y, Z. It shall or it must do A, B, and C. And so DHS and ICE were trying to introduce discretion where there was none. So we won on that one at the district court. Still getting appealed and so forth. So we're still, you know, working it out, but we won. Uh, we've also sued on something called Title 42. Title 42 is a body of laws and regulations that collectively uh, serve to, quote, rapidly expel immigrants who are expected to carry with them or come from a country with communicable diseases of public health significance. Okay. Now, the Biden administration's failure to enforce Title 42 is not only illegal, but has, in many cases, we argue, argued, slowed the ability for Texas to reopen at the pace that we wanted to because there's just tens of thousands of you know, un untested, COVID-infected illegal aliens coming into Texas. Um, we've sued on several other things, but I, I won't belabor the point. But here's a bigger, a bigger point that I, that I want you all to understand. We are basically running the same play in each of these cases every single time. The only thing that's different is the facts, right? So you have Bi the Biden administration um, messing around with detention standards or uh, public health regulations or uh, migrant protection protocols or its failure to build the wall. That was our most recent lawsuit. It's, it's canceling a whole bunch of federal contracts. But once you get through that facts section, the legal argument sections are literally the same every single time, okay? And what, what kind of claims are we bringing? We're bringing sort of substantive statutory claims that XYZ, uh, you know, in, in 8 U.S. code, whatever, whatever the immigration code is, violations of that, violations of Article 2, Section 3, Take Care Clause, multiple violations of the Administrative Procedures Act. So we're taking all these new developing facts. And by the way, you all know this. We're living in an era where there's no shortage of terrible immigration facts that work to our lawyers' benefit. It's to the, America's detriment, but to the lawyers' benefit. Um, and we're just plugging them into those same legal arguments. So these are winning cases. Uh, the American people really appreciate them. Immigration polls is like the number one issue that people care about. So it's good for the country. It's good for politics. And we're winning. So... For you, what have you seen in terms of the uh, Republican appointed judges 
um, willingness to throw sand in the gears of what the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, basically, the responsiveness to your cases vis-a-vis um, how Democrat-appointed judges responded to Democrat-brought lawsuits during the Trump administration. And Andrew, I'd love your take on this as well. Yeah, the, the answer, it's a, it's a short one, right? I mean, it's, it's much better to get a Republican-appointed judge. I mean, we, there's, not a, there's not an immigration suit that we have brought yet that we have not won at the district court level. One of the seven, we kind of got held up uh, at, at the Fifth Circuit, but that's because we drew a very bad panel. Uh, two of the three judge panel were Obama appointees, but that's okay. We just file a motion for rehearing on Bonk, and then we win there. It's like it doesn't – we're going to win. Uh, it's just a question of when. So uh, much better uh, to get those Republican judges. And so, you know, I don't – look, I don't think that – our movement should understand, by the way, I'll just – as a point of privilege, as a side note, our movement should not believe that the country will be saved because of judges – the judges will not save America, uh, but it's it's much better to have Republican-appointed judges than Democrat-appointed judges. So, Yeah, so I'll just translate a little bit because I, I thought that was great. That's very helpful. Texas is suing everywhere. But just to go back to the point I was making earlier about kind of how AGs in different states would coordinate before, and you might have some sort of corporate veneer on it, um, you know, if you're uh, API or whatever, and I hate to keep bringing them up as an example, or the chamber, you don't necessarily want wide open standing rules. You don't want anybody to sue over everything. So if, for example, tomorrow, you know, NHTSA and the Department of Transportation and EPA change the rules to say every car has to have zero emissions immediately, you, the individual, probably can't sue under that because you're not directly harmed by it necessarily. Uh, so the question in each of these cases that Texas is filing is, why is there standing? Why is Texas able to get into court? And Aaron alluded to that a little bit. He said on some of these immigration cases, I mean, how does an immigration policy hurt the state of Texas? The argument on the right would typically be we don't like anybody to be able to march into court under anything. And in an immigration case, the only two parties are really the federal government and the immigrant or a person who's being removed or whose, whose status is challenged. Um, but what we're seeing is Texas is making creative and aggressive arguments to say, these policy changes, Biden, the administration is giving stuff it's not allowed to give. Normally, you can't sue under that sort of thing, but it's actually harming Texas. It's harming Texas's ability to reopen due to COVID. It's harming Texas's public fisc. It's, you know, we've heard this before. So it's uh, to me, it's very nice to see these, these more novel claims because there are very strong interests uh, on our side, sort of on the conservative side, saying, don't make these arguments, Texas. Don't make these arguments because you know, you are harming the ability of a corporation to defend itself in the future by knocking things out of court very easily. Yeah. I'm, if I could. Yeah, please. Go ahead. All right. Um, on this issue, I, I just want to, uh, this, this concept of standing, okay, this is always something that's debated. And again, I don't want to get too legal wonky, although I imagine many of y'all are either lawyers or want to be lawyers. So I'll, I'll go into it very briefly. So there's always this debate about standing, right? Whether a proposed plaintiff, in our case, a state, has the ability to bring the case in the first place. Do you have, do you have the ability to stand in court and make this argument? Uh, and for a long time, people have wanted to, people have used standing to kill a lot of really good ideas by making this argument that, oh, the state doesn't have standing in this, in this matter. So we, we shouldn't bring that. But standing in an immigration context in particular is much easier to make. And I'll tell you why. Typical standing is you just have to show harm, you have to show causation, and you have to show redressability. In other words, what you're asking the court to do is going to fix the problem that you're complaining about. So that's sort of textbook standing, those three elements. But in an immigration context, when a state brings a lawsuit, states are given what's called special solicitude which is basically just a boost. So to the extent any of those standing elements are doubtful or kind of on the fence, this legal concept of special solicitude pushes you into the realm of being granting standing. So that's something that we try to share with our Republican friends. Uh, it's, much, it's pretty easy to get standing in an immigration lawsuit. Brent, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, standing is a sore subject since Texas v. Pennsylvania happened. So <laughs> yeah. we, we, we just don't agree with the Supreme Court on their standing jurisprudence, but... It's neither here nor there today. 
Fair enough. Well, another one of the issues that Attorney General Paxton has been very entrepreneurial on, and again, a great example of how he didn't, you know, sit on his hands during the Trump administration has been the issue of big tech. Um, you know, I believe there was preliminary research being done on the cases against Google as early as 2017. Um, walk us through sort of how uh, your office thinks about what red states, what the attorneys general in red states can do to be aggressive and entrepreneurial on the big tech issue and then the specific cases that you guys have brought? Well, so big picture wise, I think most people on the on the right side have underestimated uh, the big tech threat, additionally have tried to place it within a historical framework that doesn't really fit. Um, I think it's unprecedented that there's this much control of speech centralized in so many private hands. Um, and, and in many ways, uh, COVID has exacerbated that. There is no meeting at the community center during COVID, right? Everything is centralized online. And so that just poses, I think, novel questions that, uh, you know, are we okay with that? And how does that fit in with our, I understand they're not government actors, right? I mean, we obviously know that, and, but that doesn't foreclose the problem of the control that they present in America. Um, so I think General Paxton, from the get-go, saw these signs, saw these problems, and began an investigation. Uh, in He himself went out to California and was out meeting with these uh, executives, former executives of big tech, uh, meeting with engineers, talking about how they were structuring, in the Google case, the ad market. Um, and so, you know, a large part of his big tech focus has been on the ad tech case, and the concept that Google and Facebook were rigging this ad market. I mean, the alarm bells should go off for everybody. We get attacked sometimes for the anti antitrust individuals in our movement, uh, but they wouldn't. They would be alarmed too if they if this was Wall Street and Google and Facebook had rigged Mar- Mar- Wall Street with a secret market. And so, when Google controls the entire ad world, which they do substantively. And you think you're bidding for an ad fairly, and it turns out you're not because Facebook and Google have rigged who's going to win in certain percentage of cases under like a Section 1 theory. That, that's a real threat, right? And that audit market, art market is just as important, maybe even more important than Wall Street because ads in the United States drive many sales. Most sales are driven by ads. So that Google ad market is just extremely important to our economy. And so uh, General Paxton saw that threat. And he moved to action and and provided a, a roadmap. Now, the unfortunate thing is we put we got put in, in into an MDL, and so that case, which we were hoping to go to trial within a year and a half, is now looking like it'll be years before we end up in trial. Um, so the, the big tech threat is real, though, and we have other fights on other fronts. Twitter has come after Ken Paxton, has sued him in the Ninth Circuit for doing a state invest, investigation in Texas into Twitter's. Uh, representations under our Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Um, And so we're litigating that now in the Ninth Circuit. We're going to win. We won in the liberal uh, district court in California on the issue. Uh, Twitter brought novel claims of their First Amendment rights. Uh, (laughs) So uh, we're going to win. They said you were bullying them. Well, I would encourage you guys, if if you want to be entertained, Pull up the original lawsuit Twitter brought against Ken Paxton and read it. Uh, they they went into even his statements he had made on Twitter personally, and how mean he was. So it's good. It's a good read. So, so you know, I, I mentioned earlier that our animating philosophy is the belief that we are at war with forces that want to destroy the American order, and one of the worst particular enemies of those forces that we're fighting is big tech. And I think we believe that they truly represent an existential threat to our way of life. And they're a threat for two reasons. One, it's their market power. They're just absolute market dominance. And two, it's their own anti-American, anti-Western, anti-human, anti-science philosophy. So it's the power and their ideology. It's not necessarily that big tech is big. I mean, conceivably, you could have something that's big but serves good purposes. It's not necessarily that it's technology, because technology, rightly ordered, if it's sort of subordinate to ultimate human ends and has its rightful place and is utilized fine, I think we should be very excited about what technology has for our future. 
what, what, what we are talking about, the sort of big tech fight that we're talking about, is the kind of uh, digital era, hegemonic, canceling, dominating, anti-human, anti-Western, anti-constitutional, anti-American, anti-Anglo, like pick all the stuff. That's what I'm talking about. That's what we're talking about when we talk about big fighting big tech. Now, the states have, I think, a vital role in fighting that threat. And I see that role playing out in sort of three areas, okay? The first area is in the consumer protection or deceptive trade practices space, okay? The second area is in antitrust or anti-competitive conduct. It's sort of a second bucket of laws that you can draw from to attack big tech. And then the third is in the privacy space, okay? So virtually every state has laws on the books that give state attorneys general the muscle to be able to dip into one of those arsenals and pick up a weapon and start shooting, okay? So, and Texas is using weapons from each of those arsenals. On the Consumer Protection uh, Deceptive Trade Practices Act, when Parler got canceled in January for insufficiently warning users of like violence and so forth, every platform canceled it, including Twitter. So we filed what are called civil investigative demand. That's right, all at the same time. It was like Samsung, Google, Twitter, everybody. Everybody canceled Parler, right? Because of violence or something. And uh, so we filed civil investigative demands to basically say, give us your, give us your, your terms and conditions of, of what you're representing to customers, okay? And we did that citing our, the state of Texas's consumer protection laws, okay? Now, Twitter came out to us and Brent gave a good synopsis of Twitter saying, you guys are mean, you're coming after us with these CIDs. And then you have another bucket, right? You've got the antitrust, anti-competitive bucket of laws. That's the basis of our Google suit that Brent mentioned. And then you have the privacy bucket, which is a much more complicated bucket. It's very expensive to go after folks, but you see examples, for example, in Illinois, there was a $650 million settlement class action suit against Facebook for their facial recognition stuff. Arizona has a similar lawsuit, not necessarily against Facebook. But big tech is an existential threat to the American order. There's plenty that states can do, uh, and, there's a, and there's all kinds of laws. It's just a question of whether uh, our public servants have the courage to be able to wield those laws. Andrew, I want to get your thoughts on all of this, and specifically how the conservative legal ecosystem in, in D.C., but also elsewhere, has reacted to this, this sort of approach to, to questions of big tech. Um, but also, I mean, any entrepreneurialism on, on these issues. I mean, what have you seen in terms of pushback? I mean, I feel like there's a new antitrust lawyer every day on Twitter that's on the Google Dime that's harassing anyone who speaks out. Rachel Bovard, who works here at CPI, who's on our board, um, is probably on some sort of hit list by these people at this point. What, what have you seen in, the, in this ecosystem? So I'll just say that was a really great overview uh, in terms of talking about the three different buckets that states have. Um, and each of those three buckets is something that I think typically free market types are not as comfortable with. So um, on consumer protection, you know, that's a, a bugbear of the anti-tort side, certainly. Uh, same with antitrust. I think you might have briefly had a quip in there alluding to, and folks are not happy. That's true. That's true. And they've even come up with the term, you know, hipster antitrust. And they're not they're not happy with people that are using antitrust laws uh, in this way. I guess the biggest point that Aaron made that I want to make sure I don't think it passed you by because it was a punch in the face, but it was a, a substantive vision of what the law is supposed to do. This is not a second order thing about bigness. This is about these specific individuals. And I think the antitrust laws at the, at the federal level, these are very big, broad statutes that have that serve substantive visions, and they historically did. And it was only with sort of Bork and kind of the, you know, really a little earlier than that, but the 70s and the 80s, where we get uh, people trying to sort of cabin that in and say, actually, the antitrust is very small and technical, and it's about economics and defer to the people with PhDs. No, antitrust is a, a political tool for um, enforcing public policy ends on 
businesses. And businesses, corporations are all chartered by the government one way or another. They're chartered in Texas. My LLC is chartered in Texas. It means that the state gives me a document that says, you, uh, fake imaginary thing, are actually now a corporation. So it's a state thing governed by state law, and it's totally appropriate for state law and federal law to kind of massage and, and, and input public dialogue and public policy ends. So antitrust law is not a highly, it is a highly specialized field in terms of law. People get paid a lot of money to do it. Um, maybe some of the antitrust work out there is really a subterranean battle between Oracle and Google or whatever. Fine. But the fact remains is that is that antitrust is out there. It's a legitimate legitimate tool. Some people will say that it's not. Um, I think that it is. So uh, consumer protection was one. Uh, privacy was the third one. Antitrust was the second one. Privacy was the third one. Certainly we've seen there was a big lobbying effort when, when, when Europe passed its global, I forget what they call it, GDPR, GDPR right. And, and oh my gosh, GDPR is awful because individuals have private rights of action to take down stuff and get dossiers, and it's similar to our credit reporting laws in the states. Um, again, to go back to Texas's abortion law, the European context of a private right of action, the Texas abortion law of a private right of action, you know, these are things that are on the table. It may be the case that individuals get certain privacy rights at some point against against big tech. So I think we're seeing a nice opening up of thought about different legal and public policy tools. I think Aaron gave a very good overview. And I commend each of you as staffers to think about these things. Don't be stuck in the in the view of like antitrust is confusing. It's like, no, antitrust is go back to Teddy Roosevelt, go back to trust busting. It's about political control of corporations where there's a problem. So look at all to, all available tools. You, well, you brought up the private right of action thing, and I want to, in the last few minutes, and hopefully we'll get a chance for at least one question, talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the title of this panel was uh, Red America in Defiance um, and uh, Using uh, Law to Fight Federal Lawlessness. Well, uh, the Biden administration in, in one of its rare cases has actually gone in the reverse here and has taken umbrage with something Texas has done, uh, specifically with regards to SB8, which was the anti-abortion law that was recently passed in Texas. Um, uh, could, could you, uh, Brent, could you talk about you know, what um, that law is? And uh, I know that it's currently pending litigation before the Supreme Court, so uh, you can't necessarily opine uh, too much, but, but give an overview of sort of what, what your argument is um, to the Supreme Court as to why it's, it's, it's constitutional. So uh, the law that passed was very different. It, it created a private cause of action, as we discussed, uh, for uh, uh, abortions after six weeks. Uh, and, and any person could basically sue the doctor or sue whoever uh, provided any type of service related to that abortion. Even, you know, the, the left likes to point out, even the Uber driver that drove them there, of course, you got to have a knowing, there's a knowing issue there. Uh, but it really created this $10,000 uh, amount that you could recover in the event that abortion occurred after that time period. And functionally, uh, the law also said, and no state actor can enforce this. You are barred from even taking a position in enforcement of this, um, which created a major problem for uh, the feds and also for the private parties because then they couldn't go sue the state actor on the front end to get an injunction. Uh, they have to wait, at least under the theory of the law, is you've got to wait until somebody actually sues the abortion provider. Um, the, the genius of the law from the writer's perspective, and again, this is just is the, is the end result of this law. It's this standstill, this standoff we have where doctors, they're not going to risk this $10,000 fine to do this abortion, right, for every abortion they do. So they end up just not doing these abortions after six weeks. And then they're just waiting to see, well, are they going to sue or not? So you just... So theoretically, a lot of lives have been saved, arguably, during this time period. Um, but it presents real, a real conundrum, I believe, for the Supreme Court. Um, and there, uh, you know, there, there's very much a holiness around abortion jurisprudence that exists, and they just want to find a way to preserve it. And uh, you can, uh, it's hard to summarize the whole arguments, but if you go listen to the arguments, you can see them online. Um, one of the crazy things, just as an example, and I'm not going to talk much more about this, but the parties in the federal government were asking that the court enjoin the clerks from even filing the suits, which, if you think about that, county clerks don't even make decisions about substance of suits when they accept the filing. They have a ministerial duty to accept the filing. It's unheard of to bar just the filing of the suit, but that's how desperate they are to kill this thing. Um, but, you know, I would encourage you guys to listen to the arguments, hear our position. It's 
it's much more nuanced that we, we can't do it justice in, in a few minutes that we have left, but it's online on the Supreme Court's website. Andrew, would just like to get a couple of your thoughts on, on the Texas law. It's, I know this has been a, a bugaboo of yours for a while, and you were quite enthused when, uh, when that case uh, you know, uh, was made. So one, one little point, which is this, again, some of this goes back to what we were talking about standing. I know it's technical, but the question is, what's the opportunity for someone who wants to challenge the law to sue? You know, what opportunity do they have there? And even Justice Barrett was saying, I'm a little concerned that it looks like there's no opportunity for people to challenge this. So even, you know, vaunted Catholic justice, Amy Coney Barrett, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So um, why do I like this law? I think, again, it's a tool that we've not used, which is leveraging, possibly leveraging private rights of action, decentralized legal enforcement, maybe even the trial bar. Um, the left does it all the time. There are all sorts of laws on the books. I mentioned credit reporting where, you know, people or, or, or shareholder derivative suits or, you know, mass toxic torts. There are all sorts of cases where there's a huge profit motive for lawyers to, on their own initiative, go out and find plaintiffs. Okay, because how do lawsuits get brought? Either someone's really pissed off and they say, I'm going to spend my money and go sue. Or there's someone who says, sees dollar signs. And I think part of the genius of the Texas law is not that it's huge dollar. $10,000 is really not very much for a lawsuit at all. It's, it's, it's a substantial amount of money, but it's not going to be... Anyways, but it's... You're an it's to staffers. That's a lot of money. It's a monetary incentive. Yeah, okay. All right. So it's, you know, it will double your salary. Yeah. <laughs> no. But it's a substantial amount of money. So it does leverage the trial bar. And I think there are many areas where we could be leveraging the trial bar. Just look at the, look at the top two issues polling right now among Republican voters right? Election integrity, okay? What if you had a private right of action for suing, in theory, under violations of a state election code? Oh my gosh. Or number two, um, CRT, right? Uh, critical race theory and school, school issues. What if you had a private right of action for, oh my gosh. So, you know, there is ample work out there for creative staffers to look at these new tools that are being developed and used. The arguments against the Texas abortion law really have almost nothing to do with abortion, it's about the structure of the thing. It's about standing when you can sue. And sure, of course, at the end of the day, it does come back to, is it a really bad law and harms abortion under our current jurisprudence, or is it only a kind of bad law and it passes muster? So, um, But the structure of the arguments are the same, and you can cross-apply these to different areas. So if you've got any issue you know, before you, you're thinking of laws, think of creative ways that you can incentivize private individuals to do the investigative work and to compile data and then turn it over to some official body. You know, maybe that's money to bring a suit. You know, if you succeed on a suit, you know, maybe it's a prize for whistleblowing where you don't bring the suit, but if they're, so there are lots of different tools that are out there and I'd encourage you to look at, look at them. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we have time for one question. I will pass this mic down and trust you guys to, to, to send it to the right person. Um, Milton raised his hand first. So if I think so. One issue that I think uh, doesn't really get much attention at the federal level is affirmative action. And uh, that's something that uh, it seems extremely unpopular, even in blue states, uh, and it seems to be blatantly unconstitutional. So with this lack of federal attention to it, uh, is there anything going on at the state level or what can be done at the state level, whether in Texas or other states? You are correct that affirmative action is um, a much hated uh, public policy preference. The, the difficulty at the state level is, is just the, the case law is not very friendly. In other words, it's very thorny. There, there's, the likelihood of pursuing an avenue that is going to win is just very low. And so when we look at, you know, we, we might want to have, we all want a nation in which our laws judge people by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. And that should be reflected in higher education, uh, hiring practices, uh, board appointments, and so on and so forth, right? Um, it's just when, we, when a state is thinking about uh, what kind of lawsuits it wants to affirmatively pursue or investigations and so forth, it's a calculus not only of what is most popular, or what uh, enemy is most loathsome, loathsome and thus 
uh, most desirable to like go after, it's also we have to factor in likelihood of success. What's the state angle? Can we even win this thing? And my view is that when it comes to state, a state attorney general's office, and I'll limit my comments to that, uh, what's the path for success? It doesn't look very fruitful. I think this is where we really need to look at uh, Republican-controlled legislat legislatures to change their state laws um, uh, to, to improve the situation. I just don't see our angle being very helpful. I mean, if you care about that issue, I would encourage you to check out our ICWA case we have before the Supreme Court right now, or it's going to be before the Supreme Court in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, it's the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, there's some, going to be some overlap with issues you might care about uh, that we are litigating that, that are nationwide, have a nationwide impact. But if I would encourage you all to check that out if that's an area you're interested in. Well, and it's also part of kind of the broader theme of cases, which is sort of racial, you know, uh, di disparate uh, results, uh, meaning discrimination, um, you know, creeping into our federal law over the last couple of decades, but also concretely during the Biden administration. There was the case I know that you guys uh, were involved with, at least I believe you were, with America First Legal when it came to um, farmers um, receiving disparate uh, levels of federal aid. Um, you know, th there's a whole set of cases around what we now call critical race theory in certain contexts, but can be abstracted to a whole set of concepts, very unpopular ones going back 50 years that, that you guys are involved with. Um, with that, uh, that will officially end our panel. Once again, wanted to thank uh, the DC uh, Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. Arthur Millick, their executive director, uh, is there in the back if you'd like to say hello to him at some point. Uh, once again, our organization is American Moment. I uh, want to thank you guys and thank all the panelists for joining us today. I believe we have some more food back there, so feel free to mill around for another 15, 20 minutes or so. Maybe you'll catch our panelists and you can uh, ask them any questions or, or talk to them and, and get their contact information. But uh, thank you guys for joining us. And and, uh, have a great day. High energy panel. I told you guys it would be. Um, if you made it to the end, thank you. Let us know what you thought of the format and everything. We always uh, are eager for feedback on these sorts of things. And come to the next one in person. You'll get free food as a, uh, that is for your stomach as opposed to just the nourishment for your mind that we regularly prefer to you on this podcast, what we have made. Uh, <laughs> um, I hate that. I, it's fine. <laughs> Screw you too. Anyway. Um, I, look, I, I, I have enormous respect for each of the people that was on that panel. Um, Brent and Aaron are really engaged in serious leadership out in Texas, and Kloster is one of the scarily smartest human beings that the world has ever seen. Um, so that was a delightful time. And then look, I mean, it's funny. We, we don't really do the lawyer stuff. Like, I have no interest in competing with the lawyer institutions. Also, you shouldn't go to law school. And, you almost did. Um, you well, almost yeah. did. We had several phone calls about this before we started American Moment. Yeah. And I, I would like to be on the record as telling Srab Sharma to not go to law school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if only you could not bang the table. Um, that'd be great. Uh, I can't help it. Uh, so, yeah. So don't go to law school. But if you must, please be useful as a lawyer. For instance, become an abortion bounty hunter. Um, which is, <laughs> <laughs> that's what the left keeps calling these trial lawyers that now have the ability to sue suspected abortionists in texas based please do that it's that's the mandate excellent. from heaven become uh, an abortion bounty hunter yeah if you want us to if you become an abortion bounty hunter let me know and i will get a custom pin made up for you i'll pay for it myself um it's it, it's excellent um and so uh but look i mean this law stuff does matter and um you know josh hammer's on our board and and we've done episodes with some of these legal guys uh the conservative movement is about to reach an apogee when this Dobbs case comes down. I, I, I've had a bit for a while now, I may write this up too, that if regardless of what happens in the Dobbs case, the conservative movement as we know it is over. If Dobbs goes the wrong way, if the court kind of comes to some mealy-mouthed like ratification of Roe and Casey, um, our leaders have failed. And the entire conservative establishment has failed they dragged people along like dogs on a leash for 60 years and said you have to vote for whatever corporate hack um we 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 elect to either senate congress or president um and and so that we can get these supreme court nominees they have six of them now 
And if they aren't able to deliver on the issue that is the greatest engine for energy on the right, um, then they deserve to be removed from power. On the converse, if Roe and Casey are overturned and the politics of abortion becomes largely a state issue, um, or as I would like, a issue of federal mandate, uh, we should make abortion illegal in all 50 states um, at the federal level. That's what I'd like to do. I mean, um, that also changes the politics of how the conservative movement operates. It's no longer this defensive, defensive posture, a purely legalistic argument. Oh, Roe is bad law. Casey is bad law. No, we're going to start talking about good laws. And implementing good ones at the state and federal level. And so one way or another, things are about to change uh, in the conservative legal world. And so if you're a law student or uh, a sitting lawyer and um, you want to get plugged into a network of some people who are thinking like you, again, it's not really our thing, but I'm happy to to connect you to people who might be um, relevant. And then in general, uh, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. Um, and that's a perfect way to reach out to us to make sure that I see your message and we'll find time to talk and find a way for you to get involved whether you're a lawyer or not you will get a meeting with sarab sharma himself yeah if you go to americanmoment.org slash join yeah so be great that is a very um, rousing like you know call to action way too many of you already filled it out last week and so um i have a lot of these to sort through and emma's setting up the meetings right now as we speak but uh um, your calendar is terrifying right yeah now. it's very bad yeah i want to die anyway um <laughs> So yeah, AmericanMoment.org slash join. Uh, go fill that out. Um, write a five-star review of the podcast. Uh, follow us on YouTube. Uh, follow us everywhere uh, on social media. Uh, that's AmMoment.org most places. Uh, and uh, buckle in because we've got a couple uh, great weeks of this podcast left. And then uh, we're off. Um, and we'll be back in season two. So thank you guys for sticking around this much. Thank you to all of you who listen, thousands and thousands of you at this point, uh, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.